Hi, I'm Mark Brody, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning and welcome to the show here on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, what's next for the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors now that two of its leaders aren't running for re-election? And how new data are forcing researchers to rethink what we know about how valley fever spreads. But first, statewide elected officials in Arizona could get pretty big pay raises under a bill set for consideration in a state Senate committee tomorrow. Meanwhile, most of the rest of the action at the state capitol will be on the floors of the House and Senate, as it's what's known as crossover week, when bills cross from one chamber to the other. With me now, as he is every Monday during the legislative session to talk about what to expect at the legislature, is Howie Fisher of Capital Media Services. Good morning, Howie. Good morning. And you seem to think that we should expect something from our lawmakers? Well, I mean, when it comes to pay raises, maybe. I mean, this seems like uh, for statewide elected officials, they could be getting pretty hefty bumps here. Well, yeah, and maybe I may even run for governor if it really gets approved. (laughs) Right now, Arizona has among the lower rates among statewide elected officials. I mean, there are a few states that have essentially just honorary salaries. But the governor gets 95000 a year, which if you are the chief executive officer of an agency with a budget uh, of just state money of like $18 billion, and you're talking about with federal funds, you know, you're talking much more than that. 95000 is not a lot. The proposal is to raise that to $220,000. There are similar raises proposed Secretary of State going from seventy thousand to one hundred eighty-five thousand, the Treasurer going from seventy to one hundred seventy-five thousand, and the Attorney General going from ninety thousand up to two hundred thousand. Now, I'm thinking that some of the lawmakers are saying to themselves, you know, if we give the top folks a raise, maybe the people who get control of our salaries will say, maybe you people are worth more. Yeah, lawmakers are paid ninety, or excuse me, twenty-four thousand dollars a year right now. And under the state constitution, that can only be approved by voters. And voters have looked the last couple of times this has been on the ballot and said, hey, yo creo que no on this. Right. That uh, that maybe we're getting what we paid for when it's supposed to be a part-time legislature. But it is an interesting question because the other thing to remember about Arizona is we are one of the few states in the nation that does not have a gubernatorial mansion. Right. No residents. Residents. Yeah. And- you know, that hasn't been an issue because most of the governors have come actually from the Phoenix area and were quite happy in their own homes. The one exception years ago was when Raul Castro came up from Tucson. He didn't. He actually stayed in the motel for a while till Tom Chauncey, who was the owner of Channel 10 at the time, said, I'll buy a house. Raul Castro stayed there. When Raul Castro left, it went back to the state and it was eventually sold off. So, Howie, in addition to uh, pay raises, uh, border security and immigration are once again going to be uh, at the fore at the Capitol, including uh, a bill from the State House Speaker dealing with E-Verify, which is something that we've been talking about for many, many years here in Arizona. Oh, this goes back even before House, uh, the, the old Senate Bill 1070. Right. The federal government has set up this E-Verify system, which I'm hoping they've worked the bugs out of. The idea is if you're an employer... You can go in and you put in the person's name, social security number, and other information. You can determine if they are here legally. It is required right now for 
private employers. I don't know how many are doing it, which is part of the reason one of the items in the bill would say, if you're purposely not doing it, you can have $10,000 fines. This would extend it to the state in terms of public benefits. So, for example, if you are getting public housing, you would have to verify through E-Verify that, you know, that person is here legally. Uh, it also includes, curiously enough, a couple of things that I'm not sure you can. For example, it talks about, you know, food assistance. Well, food stamps are not paid for by the state. Right. Or, you know, things like that. So it, it's going to be an interesting question there about how far you can go with that. Now, it's also important to remember politically that Ben Toma, who is the House Speaker, as you point out, is also running for Congress in the old CD8, which is where Debbie Lesko is leaving. And, you know, I can't help but believe that maybe there's a little effort there to get a little bit of attention for his Republican credentials in the primary. Mm. Howie, I want to ask you about uh, a a strike everything amendment to a bill that would create the Arizona Space Commission. What is this and what would it do? Well... (laughs) <laughs> you know, as the old saying goes, insert your own joke here. Yeah. You know, do you want to be a space cadet, etc.? The idea is that Arizona has always wanted to be at the forefront of space exploration. Not that we're sending up people from Arizona, but that, that we can have some sort of role in space. And if you set up a commission, then you can possibly set it up so that we could have a landing port here. You could have training programs. The idea, you know, on paper probably is decent. I don't know that we need to know this commission, you know, versus let's say the Commerce Authority, which is supposed to be handling economic development. But again, the idea is we, we need to have something else and it's maybe non-controversial, although who knows? I mean, we have a vote today, for example, to designate Pluto the official state planet. Right. Now, who knows who's going to vote against that? I mean, you know, does Pluto have anything to say about it? <laughs> it's pretty far away and pretty small. So I'm guessing the voice would be uh, would take a little while to get here. Um, so how I mentioned that this is is crossover week, a lot of floor action. Are you expecting lengthy agendas for both a debate by the full House and Senate as well as uh, final votes on a lot of bills? Oh, you're going to be talking about sessions with 30 and 40 bills up. And that doesn't even count the appropriations committees, which are still allowed to handle bills, which also become the place where if you have something that hasn't gotten through the way you want, you do a strike everything amendment. They each have 30 or 40 bills. Mm. And so we're probably looking at a lot of late nights. Now, also remember, to a certain extent, it's a bit of their own fault. For example, on Mondays, the House and Senate don't come in till one o'clock. Why not be working like us at this hour? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, And they don't tend to work at all on Fridays, which gets into one other quick side issue, which is, can you really do justice to major legislation when you're limited to five to 10 minutes on a bill and say, well, sorry, you've got all your questions answered. We're going to move it along, which leads to various efforts of the old saying, legislate in haste, repent at leisure. And you suddenly find out we enacted what? Right. Interesting. All right. Well, Howie Fish will be chugging the Red Bulls this week. Howie, thank you as always. You're welcome. When the federal government rolled out its new and improved version of the online college financial aid form, commonly known as FAFSA, 
It was supposed to make things easier for students. Instead, what has followed has been described as a chaotic rollout full of glitches that are making it hard for students to find out how much federal student aid they qualify for as the clock ticks closer to graduation. And central to the problems that have yet to be solved by the Department of Education is for students with immigrant parents who don't have a Social Security number. They can't seem to be able to register with the site. Jamie Gosling has spent a lot of her time lately trying to make sure students don't give up on the process and decide not to go to college at all. She's a post-secondary articulation specialist with the Phoenix Union High School District. She works with school counselors district-wide to help students with what comes next, and I spoke with her more about what she's seeing here locally. Well, federal student aid has a list of kind of ongoing issues that are unresolved, and so we continue to look at that There's numerous issues that are just problematic and unresolved. But the biggest concern that we are seeing is that students who have a parent without a social security number, um, they're kind of stuck. They're either not able to create an FSA ID Mm -hmm. or if they are able to create an FSA ID, um, they just aren't able to complete the form. So our students are able to complete their side if they've got a social security number. But our parents of those students, they're just kind of in a holding pattern. Hmm. So it sounds like that's one major issue with students with immigrant parents. But there are lots of other sort of weird glitches happening. Kids not being able to get through. The deadlines have been pushed back. Right. Like what's the broad picture look like as well? Yeah. Um, So for a while, we were really stressed um, as school counselors trying to meet deadlines of March 1st for our students, particularly around the Obama scholarship at ASU. But um, the three in-state universities have all pushed their deadline back to May 1st, their FAFSA priority deadline. Um, So that's relieved a little bit of stress for our our students and families and school counselors. Mm -hmm. But still, there hasn't been a whole lot of progress made, you know, since the FAFSA has opened. This issue regarding uh, parents without social security numbers is an ongoing issue since January 4th. Um, I was on in a webinar meeting this morning with Arizona Board of Regents and just kind of the the experts in FAFSA. Mm -hmm. And there just is no timeline when this will be resolved. So we're, again, just kind of waiting. So what does this mean necessarily for students who are trying to prepare for college, community college, whatever it may be? Like, Mm -hmm. are they going to have to decide where they're going late or if they can afford to go to a certain college a little later on? Or are you worried that kids are just going to give up and they might not go at all? Yeah. So I actually met with some students the other day just to kind of gauge, you know, what what have their experiences been? And they said it's really stressful um, because they aren't being told by the universities what their financial aid package will be. Mm -hmm. Um, They might not get that until April. And so they're just kind of waiting to see what that looks like. And, you know, in speaking to one student, that financial aid package really determines where they can go to school and if they can go to school. Um, Because they said, you know, my parents just can't afford to pay. So instead of students having, you know, some time to kind of review those financial aid packages and make an informed decision, um, it seems a little bit rushed 
this year, that they're going to have to make a really big decision pretty quickly. Yeah. One of the national stories around this is that we've seen because of all the problems people are having trying to fill out this form online, that the the completion rates for FAFSA uh, for students all over the country have just dropped massively. You've got tons of kids yes. just kind of not being able to or giving up or waiting or whatever it might be for this financial mm-hmm. aid. What's it look like in your district, first of all? Well, I do, um, from the meeting that we had this morning, I do have data for the state of Arizona. Mm. Um, There's about 14% of students who have completed the FAFSA so far. What is it usually? Uh, That I don't know at this point, but that is incredibly low. Wow. Nationally, I'm looking at the National College Attainment Network. They're saying nationally only 16% of students have completed the FAFSA, and that was through January 26th. Man, so you want to see those rates go way up. Is it too late or do you think many students will complete it when they can get through or some of these glitches maybe are fixed? Well, I'm hopeful um, that students will get through it and complete it once the glitches are fixed. I just know us as adults, we need to continue to push through and encourage our students to not give up um, because they've definitely they definitely have encountered many hurdles so far. Mm. So, yeah, tell us more about your advice to students and families at this point. Like, what can you do to help? Right. So obviously staying connected to your school counselor on your campus. Um, there are various resources across the state. There is a website, ArizonaFAFSA.org, that is open to help students complete. I know we've got a great partnership with College Depot in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. Um, so we encourage families and students to seek out their services if they need extra support or help. Um, we have a great partnership with Be a Leader as well, who is uh, helping our students on campuses to get through the FAFSA. So we are very fortunate in Phoenix Union to have great partnerships. However, we're just all kind of in this waiting game of when will people, you know, these things get fixed so that people can uh, proceed completing the form. Okay. So going forward, as you're sort of trying to make sure that people finish these forms and don't give up and and that, you know, it sounds like it's a little bit of chaotic at this point. What are your biggest concerns going forward? Like, what do you think this could mean for this generation or this year of, of high school graduates? Well, I am concerned that because, you know, there have been some roadblocks and many roadblocks for some students that they are just going to give up, Um, that, you know, it's too hard. I'll just I'll do it next year. Mm. Um, So really making sure that, you know, we encourage students and, and remind them of how important this is. And hopefully we'll have answers to just continue to be their cheerleaders that we can get through this. But I am afraid, like I said, many Uh, Students depend on financial aid to go to college. Mm. We are a 86% free and reduced lunch district. Um, And so it could mean, you know, if they they think they're not getting financial aid or if they were not to get financial aid, that might be the, the factor in going to college. Man. All right. We will leave it there for now. That is Jamie Gosling, post-secondary articulation specialist with the Phoenix Union High School District to talk more about what's happening with FAFSA this year. Jamie, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us about this. I appreciate it. Thank you so much.
Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. And I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, how a white web-like substance on cacti has been used to make red dye for centuries. But first, new data suggests some of what we thought we knew about how valley fever spreads is not, in fact, true. The study was published in Scientific Reports and is based on data gathered from air filters set up in some of the country's biggest cities after 9-11. They were intended to be used to monitor potential bio-threat agents in the air. And while they haven't detected any of those, they have been gathering information scientists hadn't been looking at until now. Dr. Dave Engelthaler is one of those scientists. He's the director of the Infectious Disease Arm of the Translational Genomics Research Institute, or TGen. He joins me to talk more about this. And Dave, some of the information from these filters has to do with the fungus that causes valley fever. And it seems as though some of what you're finding is maybe a little counterintuitive. Yeah, exactly. I've I've definitely wanted to be able to look at Um, valley fever where people are getting exposed to the fungus and that is in the air and we haven't had that ability really until now and and using these air filters we can look at when the valley fever fungus what we call coxie shows up in the air where it shows up for how long uh, and then also might what might be causing that which we think is really important to help prevent cases into the future. Yeah, so what do we know now based on this new information about what might be causing coxie to be up in the air? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, we started to build out the story without having really good information beforehand. And that included thinking that dust storms or these haboobs are a really important cause of valley fever. And what we're finding is that they're not. They're, in fact, seem to have no significant effect, actually, of people getting exposed to the valley fever fungus. Uh, we're also seeing that the fungus, when the, the fungal spores are in the air, it's not uniformly distributed. You don't see it across the valley all the time. We'll see tend to see hot spots showing up uh, and then going away. And so it, it seems like maybe it's it's a lot more variable and a lot more locally focused than we had originally thought. Does it seem as though there's any rhyme or reason to where those hot spots pop up and and when and and why? Yeah, we think that uh, really what's important is just kind of going back to the basic life cycle of this fungus, which is the fungus has to, is growing in the soil in, in a specific location. And then that soil is contaminated. It gets disturbed and the spores can get up into the air and then somebody or or a dog or some animal has to breathe it in to to continue that life cycle of of infection and then it's got to get back into the soil at some point and so what's really important is that we know that the soil is not uniformly contaminated and so it has to be where the fungus is in the soil that gets disturbed and we think that happens on a much more local level than say for instance a giant dust storm blowing through and pushing uh contamination or con- the fungus up into the air so would the key then be or maybe a key in somehow figuring out where in the soil this fungus is living like if it's in this part of town or on this lot or in this part of the desert if we were able to know that would that be helpful in trying to maybe direct people not to go in those areas at particular times yeah i think that's a really important point mark but we also want to make sure then that if wherever we have it in the soil we're not causing it to get up into the air for mm. people to breathe in and so um really what we know about the soil is that it is 
highly variable when it shows up. You could have a real hot spot in the soil, say where an animal burrow was, maybe an animal had died with the fungus uh, and it contaminated the soil, but you could go just a few feet away and dig up and not find the fungus right there. So it is very spotty uh, and, and really variable variably dispersed around the endemic area of the Southwest. We do know that it, it does occur in the soils throughout the valley region and the surrounding desert. So where um, there may be disturbances like new construction or new development, or even people just gardening in an area where the fungus had existed could cause those spores to come up out of the soil and into the air, and then we breathe it in. So we think this is what we're seeing now is this very localized effects that are occurring probably a thousand times a day in neighborhoods all over the valley. And then you just accidentally are going to get exposed to those spores versus saying this broad-based contamination of the of the air in Phoenix, which doesn't seem to be the case at all. Yeah. Well, like, is there any way to be able to tell if a particular plot of soil has this fungus in it, like, is there a way to detect that? It's really tough to do. And it's it's not easy to detect the fungus in the soil, but we can. And it, it probably doesn't make sense to try to find out every place it is, because like I said, you could have it in one location and then just a few feet over it not be there. So yeah. just do a random soil sampling probably doesn't tell us much. But maybe what we can do is more soil sampling in areas where we know we're going to disturb a lot of soil. So like new development, turning over an ag field into condominiums, that might actually be useful. Or at least if that is occurring, better um, ways to mitigate and prevent that soil from getting up into the air. We, we already do a lot of dust mitigation. There may have to be more based off of the findings that we have and, and the continued studies that we're doing. How much more difficult does it make your job in trying to learn about this and trying to figure out maybe where these spores exist and, and how they get kicked up into the air when the majority of people who have these spores inside them will never show symptoms of valley fever? That's a really good point. We know that there's a lot of exposures that happen. In fact, CDC estimates over 300,000 infections every year in the Southwest, and the vast majority of those people don't even know they have it. Maybe they just have a mild upper respiratory disease or respiratory disease. Maybe they have walking pneumonia. And then some small fraction goes into the healthcare system. And some fraction of that actually gets tested and shown to, to have valley fever. So we, we can't understand valley fever just by looking at human cases, which is really what we've been doing for the last 50 years, trying to understand this by just looking at what cases show up. Now, what we have is the tools to look at it better in our environment and see where is it showing up, how is it moving, what might be driving that happen. Therefore, we can have much more targeted, better resolution with our public health messaging and response efforts. Yeah, so given this new tool and maybe a slightly more precise way of, of knowing where Coxie is, what kinds of steps do you think that public health officials and maybe residents should be taking given this information? I think, um, you know, we're working really closely with local and state public health, uh, as well as the Centers for Disease Control and with National Weather Service and Homeland Security to better understand what this data is telling us and how we can use it. Right now, we're starting to map it more closely to where we know people are 
uh, becoming infected. Uh, we're also mapping it closer, but using um, satellite imagery to see what is happening in the, the immediate surrounding areas before and during the time that filters become positive so that we can have, again, that higher resolution on what is really driving the fungus getting up into the air. This is a moving target, and we finally have the tools actually to be looking at this more closely. Right. Interesting. All right. That is Dr. Dave Engelthaler, Director of the Infectious Disease Arm at the Translational Genomics Research Institute, or TGen. Dave, thanks as always for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Mark. Maricopa County Supervisor Clint Hickman says he won't run for re-election this year. He joins the ranks of Supervisor Bill Gates, who also won't be on the board going forward. The move comes after several Republican officials like these have faced years of harassment and death threats since they refused to cede to the political forces that be and denounce the results of the 2020 election. Hickman led the County Board of Supes during that contentious election and has spoken out about the onslaught of vitriol he has received since. An Iowa man who sent him death threats will now serve a two and a half year prison sentence as a result. But our next guest says Democrat or Republican, Hickman stepping down is a loss for us all. Lori Roberts is a columnist for the Arizona Republic, and she joins editorial page editor Elvia Diaz this morning with more. Good morning to you both. Good morning. Good morning. So, Lori, remind us what happened during the 2020 election and in the wake of it. What did people like Clint Hickman, like Bill Gates, do? Well, they followed the law is what they did. As you know, if you really want to go back, there were a a lot of Republicans who felt like that election was stolen because their guy, Donald Trump, didn't win. We had a Senate audit. We had a special audit that even the county did to try to reassure people, first of all, to to find out was there a problem, and none of those places ever found a problem. They wanted to reassure the public that the election was fair, free and fair, but a certain wing of the the Republican Party just wasn't ever going to buy that. Um, Politicians looking for a way to either make money or grab power made an issue of this and riled up, you know, most of America against Maricopa County. As a result, there were all kinds of threats that came in to election officials in general and the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors specifically because they run the election day mm-hmm. activities. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of those supervisors are just now fed up and quitting. Yeah, yeah. When we say they were the focus of hate, of death threats, this kind of thing, like how far did this go? Like there's been a lot out there about about Supervisor Bill Gates talking about how he's been diagnosed with PTSD as a result. Right. You know, I mean, how many times when your wives are called at work and threatened, when when protesters descend upon your home where your children are, your young children, when you get death threats saying you're going to die, we're going to hang you. Um, it's it's serious. And several people, I, I believe there have been four thus far who have been identified and sentenced and are now in prison mm. as a result of some of the these sorts of threats. Mm. But I think what you're also seeing here is as a result of what's going on, and Clint Hickman, of course, announcing that he wouldn't run for the election late last week, is you're going to now see a very different Maricopa County Board of Supervisors potentially in the future, one that 
perhaps won't stand for the law, but instead will put their own party first. And that should be concerning to everybody. Yeah. And I want to talk more about that in a moment. But let me turn first to you, Elvia, and talk a little bit about the broader picture here. As we sort of mentioned there, Bill Gates, Clan Tickman are not going to run for re-election. But this also goes down to local levels, to, you know, election offices, election officials of all stripes have just been leaving in droves in the last several years because of this kind of thing. What are your concerns? Well, just as Laurie mentioned, I mean, extremely concerned about what it will mean for election. I mean, it seems to me that the former president, Donald Trump, is winning in this regard because he's the one that began with all this stolen election and not willing to accept the results, even though every single time the court has reinforced that the election was fair, but, you know, he just doesn't like to lose. And so he unleashed all these people against the county officials. And you know what? I don't blame them. You know, they're human beings. I mean, of course, they don't want to go through that. But then if they all leave, who's going to be left? You know, Laurie was saying there that perhaps we're going to end up with county supervisors all over Arizona. We have 15 counties with, uh, with supervisors who are who are not going to uphold the law. And what is that going to mean? Uh, that's not democracy. That's that's exactly what is at stake here. When you don't respect election results, then that there's something else, entirely something else. So yes, it's extremely concerning, and you know everyone should be looking at this very closely. Hmm. So, Lori, what do you think is the concern specifically at the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors? Like, if if we do not have these two, there are some other people on that board who might fill those shoes. Do we know who might be running? What are your worries there? Well, um, it's almost a sure thing that Debbie Lesko, Representative Debbie Lesko, who, of course, announced earlier this year she was retiring from Congress, didn't like the commute, didn't like being part of an organization that, frankly, didn't do anything, that being the U.S. Congress, So she has announced that she is going to run to fill Clint Hickman's spot. She will almost surely take that seat. If you will recall, she was one of the members of Congress who voted to basically disenfranchise us by not accepting our electoral college votes. So that's concerning that someone who didn't accept the 2020 election could now be in charge of the, what would that be, 2026, I guess, beginning then. So I think that you'll see that seat turn to someone who is more likely to be an election denier. In Tom Galvin's district, he's being challenged in the primary by Michelle Eugenti-Rita. A lot of Republicans in the legislature who are election deniers are supporting her. So there's two seats. Bill Gates' seat will be up, and there's a number of people running there. It's not clear what will will happen there. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the people running is Kate Brophy McGee, who is certainly not an election denier. But there will be, I assume that there will be a challenge there from the right, from the far right as well. So you very well could have, it's a five member board, you very well could have a completely different county board of supervisors in the future. One that perhaps may or may not turn more like Cochise County, where of course they didn't even want to certify the election results. Mm. One other thing I want to mention about Clint Hickman that I that I probably should have mentioned earlier is you will recall after the election when Donald Trump was calling elections officials in Georgia, Raffensperger, like that, um, mm-hmm. trying to get them to find extra votes. He was also calling here and he was calling Clint Hickman, who at the time was chairman of the Mount Maricopa County Board of Supervisors. And Hickman wouldn't take his calls because he knew what was coming. That's another place where he stood tall in that he valued the rule of law over the needs or desires of his party. 
Elvia, let me end with you and a broader question about sort of the the environment that we're in now and a little reflection on that. Like, did you ever imagine, I guess, that we'd be in a place where we'd be seeing this kind of thing happen, where the conversation is about questioning our 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 maybe most sacred institution, which is our our election system, our system of government? No, and I don't think anyone saw this coming. But now we know. We have seen this movie many times. We saw it in 2020. We saw it in 2022. That there are some people, some members of the Republican Party that will never accept the results. We already know that. So I think that the the way to counter that is to vote in droves. That way there are no close, tight elections. And hopefully, you know, the, 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 whoever wins will be with uh, with a great majority and there will be no doubt who won. But unfortunately, we know that whatever happens, uh, President Donald Trump and others will deny the elections, that they're election deniers. So again, extremely concerning. All right, we'll leave it there for now. Elvia Diaz, editorial page editor for the Arizona Republic, joined by columnist Lori Roberts this morning. Lori, Elvia, thank you both so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. Hearings are taking place this week in the Netherlands at the International Court of Justice over Israel. With me via Skype for our weekly look at some of the key global stories in the coming days is the BBC's Rich Preston in London. And Rich, what specifically is on the docket and what impact could these hearings have? Well, Mark, these hearings will go on all week. The International Court of Justice, the ICJ, is the United Nations' highest court. Now, the reason these hearings are happening at all is because back in 2022, the UN General Assembly asked the ICJ to hold these sessions to allow uh, different parties, different countries to give their views on certain Israeli activity. Now, with all the news recently, you might be excused for thinking this is to do uh, with what's going on between Israel and Hamas. But I said that this was December 2022, the UN Mm. General Assembly asked the ICJ to do this. So this predates the attack of October the 7th by Hamas. This is actually all to do with Israeli occupation of what is legally recognized as Palestinian territory. So, for example, Jewish settlements which are being built in the occupied West Bank. That's what the ICJ is looking into. There are two questions which countries are being asked to give opinions on. Uh, The first is about the legal consequences of these Israeli violations of the rights of Palestinian people to self-determination because of these occupations. And the second question is how Israel's practices and policies and what it's doing affect the legal status of the occupation and therefore the consequences that arise for all states and for the United Nations uh, as an entity itself. So the ICJ is going to hoover up all these opinions and then will issue its own legal opinion. Now, that legal opinion is non-binding, but it could still have an impact. Now, for what it's worth, Uh, Israel says it's not taking part. It says the ICJ has no jurisdiction on this matter. It's not getting involved. But the ICJ will still issue its opinion. Now, if the opinion is that, oh, do you know what? We've decided what Israel is doing is fine. Crack on. We're not going to get involved. Then that, you know, gives gives credence to, to what Israel is doing. And Israel will be in a position to point to that in the future and say, listen, the ICJ sought all your opinions and decided everything was okay. If, however, the opinion goes the other way and pushes back against Israel, then that really will put Israel back 
under the spotlight and put more pressure on Israel uh, to stop what it's doing and to reverse some of the, if you like, damage that it's already done. The optics on this are going to be really important, especially off the back of the ICJ ruling on Gaza a couple of weeks ago. So those hearings taking place all week. Yeah, that is really interesting. All right, Rich, let's go to Russia now, where, of course, the most prominent critic of President Vladimir Putin, Alexei Navalny, died on Friday. He had been held in what is considered one of the toughest Russian prisons since December. Prison authorities there say he fell ill after going for a walk. He collapsed and that attempts to resuscitate him did did not uh, did not work. What are you watching for on this front this week? Well, Mark, as you may remember, there was immediate international reaction to this from leaders around the world, heavily critical of Russia and of President Putin directly. What we've not heard much from is the Kremlin itself. In fact, Mark, you and I are talking about this now. Earlier on in my day, I was on air on Australian radio talking about this, New Zealand radio, South African radio in Russia itself. 28 seconds of Friday night's evening news program was devoted to Alexei Navalny. That's all. This has been on our news agendas all weekend. 28 seconds on Friday night was what Russian uh, TV audiences had. So we're looking for reaction from President Putin this week. Now, the Kremlin has called these accusations against President Putin vulgar, and more than 400 people who turned out to lay flowers for Alexei Navalny have been arrested. But we're hoping that there might be a comment by President Putin himself. Now, he often doesn't address Alexei Navalny by name, so we're waiting to see what, if anything, he says, even if just an off-the-cuff remark to a reporter. Second, Mr. Navalny's supporters in his family have still not had access to his body. It has been denied for three days in a row. Russian officials say they're conducting their own investigations. They say those investigations will need to be prolonged. And, of course, Mr. Navalny's supporters say this is a way of Russian authorities covering up what's really happening to him. The third thing we're looking for is whether world leaders will be able to do anything about this. Now, the European foreign policy chief, a guy called Josep Borrell, told the BBC that he held President Putin personally responsible for Alexei Navalny's death, but admitted it would be hard to find new ways to hold the Russian leader to account. And that is, of course, because there are already so many sanctions on Russian leaders, institutions, businessmen, as a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Russia, Mark, is the most sanctioned country in the world. Mm. The International Criminal Court already has an international arrest warrant out for President Putin in relation to his invasion of Ukraine. So there is a real sense of what more can we do, with the answer being... Not much. Yeah. Well, so, Rich, let's stay with Russia for a moment then, because Friday is also something called Defender of the Fatherland Day. What is that? Yeah, this is a public holiday celebrated in Russia, but also Belarus, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan. It celebrates Russia's armed forces. It's their Memorial Day, if you like, and the founding of the Red Army. In fact, it was originally called the Day of the Red Army. Then as world politics changed, the Berlin Wall came down, it progressed onto the Day of the Soviet Army and then Defender of the Fatherland Day. Now, one country is noticeable by its absence from the former Soviet bloc. Ukraine. In 2014, it decreed that it would have its own Defenders Day, not celebrate the Russian one. 2014, of course, the year when Russia annexed Crimea. Now, big day in Russia, as uh, as these events are for many countries around the world. So there will be military parades. There might also be gift giving ceremonies for military personnel. Last year, there were fireworks in various major cities. 
President Putin gave a televised address. He laid a wreath at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. This year, a series of museums are planned to open, which are dedicated to the heroes of the special military operation. Now, for those news hawks out there, special military operation is, of course, Kremlin speak for the invasion of Ukraine. But there's important optics here for President Putin at home. He needs to send a strong message to his domestic audience that he backs the military, that the military is strong and, crucially, that if you serve your country, even if that means dying, it will make you a hero and you will be remembered forevermore. That's really important as Russia suffers on the battlefield. So this is a big deal this week. Lots of pomp and ceremony uh, and uh, an important message for President Putin to send out uh, to people back in Russia. And especially because whilst Friday is Defender of the Fatherland Day, Saturday is the second anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Oh, that is really interesting timing. All right. That is the BBC's Rich Preston in London. Rich, good as always to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. Today, we're finding color from a somewhat unusual source. If you have paddle cactus in your yard like prickly pear, or you see them around town, you may have noticed a white, almost web-like substance on the surface. But what you can't notice, at least just by looking at it, is that that web conceals a type of bug that's played a critical role in the textile world for a long, long time. Cochineal has been a source of red dye for thousands of years and is still used today. To get a sense of the insect's history and role in our ecosystem, I sat down last year with Erica Lynn Hansen, an associate professor of textiles and socially engaged practices at ASU, who brought some show and tell along as well. And we started with what exactly cochineal is and where it comes from. So cochineal is a beetle-like parasite that lives on prickly pear cactuses here in the Sonoran Desert um, and also through Central and Southern America. And they are white when you look at them, right? Uh, the bug themselves is actually like a purplish, a dark purplish color. The okay. white on the outside that we're seeing is the webbing that holds the insect to the paddle cactus. So it's like sort of a protective webbing. Okay. And my understanding is all you need to do to create something totally different is just take one in your hand and like squeeze it between two fingers. Is that right? Kind of. Um, so if you were going to be using cushion nail for a dye, you would dry out the bug after being removed from the cactus. Um, and once it's dry, you actually remove that white webbing and then it's crushed up and boiled and ground and then turned into a dye. How was it discovered that you could use these bugs to create dye? I mean, it's been historically used in the Americas for centuries. So, like, thinking about natural dyes or organic dyes, however you want to classify them, there's sort of a whole, like, practice of using dyes found in nature pre-industrially all over the world. So we can, like, have an understanding of sort of the local ecology of a place through the dyes that have been historically used there. Um, and so that's the thing that's really cool about Cochineal is it's, like, one of the colors that is, like, inherent in this place. And how has it been used throughout history? Like, it, has it sort of been used for the same kinds of things over time? Yeah, I mean... The, the short of it is, is it was historically used as a dye for garments, uh, specifically like thinking about special garments because the size of the dye and the amount of dye that's extracted from the bug, it takes a lot of the substance to dye a thing. So if we think about like the, the best like analog we have to that is sort of the way that we understand 
Like if you remember like learning about colors as a kid Mm -hmm. and thinking about purple as like a color that was thought of and associated with royalty. Yeah. That comes from the fact that historically before pre-industrialized dyes happened, purple was extracted from a small shellfish. So you would take it would take mounds of this shellfish to create enough dye to make a garment. So thinking about the idea of labor and like weight of thing and sort of like amount of thing that had to be collected to create that object. So cochineal existed kind of similarly. So thinking about in terms of like what was sort of the access to this red dye. So being used for like very specific like special like ceremonial garments, um, then also just like ways to color and pigment the world. How prevalent are these bugs? Like you say, it takes a lot to make the dye, like, are there a lot of these bugs on prickly pears around the Sonoran Desert? Yeah. So when we think about them in terms of, like, their presence in the Sonoran Desert, like, prickly pears are interesting to think about in terms of, like, any sort of plant or animal in terms of, like, wild versus cultivated. So there are farms still that exist in Mexico and Peru, elsewhere in Central and South America, that specifically are, they're there to farm cochineal. So they have specific paddle cactuses that are like, there's a whole process involved. Like if we think about any sort of farming practice. So that's how uh, cochineal is used on an industrial scale. Um, still small scale because it's a cactus. It's growing these small bugs. But like in the Sonoran Desert, in your backyard, you will probably see this like white fuzz on your paddle cactus. And so for us, it's a pest, right? So if left like to its own devices, it's a parasite on that cactus and it will like end up suffocating it. Um, so a lot of people here, when they sort of interact with cochineal, it's sort of in a pest removal strategy as opposed to thinking about it as sort of the most important way to color something red. That's really interesting that it has this great use, but if you don't use it for that, it can really be damaging to the plant. Yeah. So you mentioned that there are still farms in parts of Central and South America where they have paddle cactuses to uh, to basically not to breed cochineal, but to, to collect farming. to collect them, to farm them. Yeah. So like, is it still fairly prominent that people use this bug for this kind of dye now? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, and there's sort of like two avenues that it's used in. I mean, there's kind of constantly been a practice of textile practitioners using natural based dyes to use it on sort of like small scale, thinking about like handmade goods, artists. But then also like cochineal has been used in manufacturing of like our everyday goods. Um, And there was sort of like a peak, um, sort of mid 20th century, and then it fell off a little. And now there's sort of a rise in it again. It was used very heavily in cosmetics, in food coloring, and across like whole spectrums of things like that, where there needed to be a safe additive that was red before just using sort of a synthesized color. Hmm. Um, And there's a resurgence again of using it again. So people trying to not use these like chemically produced colorways, but then using that. Right. I was going to ask you if it's now seen as sort of a kind of a cool, maybe retro, natural kind of way to dye, because obviously there are plenty of other ways to make the color red. Yes. Yeah, 100%. There's like a huge resurgence in people using plant-based dyes and doing research in that I mean, there's something really interesting about using natural-based dyes um, in thinking about it as a larger practice. And if you use the dyes that are local to where you live, sort of thinking about what that what that local palette looks like. And that's one of the things we're really lucky about here is we have this as one of the elements of our natural palette. So you brought a, a little bit to, to demonstrate here. Can we see how this actually works? Yeah, yeah, totally. And I brought also – I brought some paddle cactuses with – the cochineal on them, but I also brought some industrially farmed cochineal so we can just see the size difference. Great. All right. So we have here before us, we have uh, two paddles. You have uh, a mortar and 
pestle. And uh, as you said, you brought some uh, some other uh, cochineal. So like, how do you go about trying to remove the, the bugs from the cactus? So first of all, because this is demonstration, I usually would not have removed the paddles from the cactus. Um, so usually I would take a paintbrush and just sort of swipe them off or like a plastic knife and just pull them off. Okay. But for demonstration purposes, it's really easy enough just to do it with your fingers. Um, so these have the tiny little spikes, so I'm going to try and be careful not to touch them. But um, So right here we can see the cochineal and how the webbing is uh, attaching to the cactus itself. Yeah, it's like a fluffy white, exactly. almost like a little tiny little fluffy beard. Yeah, and I'm going to be I'm gonna be curious to see how big the bugs are here just because it's been summer and we haven't had a lot of rain. Um, and they feed off the cactus, and a lot of these cactuses have been a little drier. So it's sort of interesting to sort of track the size of the bug, where they're at in their cycle. This cactus I pulled this from is usually covered in them. Very few on there now. So usually when we look at them, I'll just pull this off a little bit and see if we even get any. All right, so now you're sort of like going through it in your fingers there, this almost like a cotton swab kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, it's very it looks cottony. Like. And so we try and just remove this to get to the bug itself. It looks like there might be something in there. Yep, there's a little guy. And that's so, like a tiny like black speck almost. Exactly. So it's super small. And if we pull just this up in relationship to one of these. So this cochineal that I just pulled out... It's going to be fleshy and it's going to be wet, essentially, because it was live because I just pulled it off of a cacti. But these ones that we're going to pull out are the dried beetles. So imagine they're shrinking that happens in the drying. Yeah. Well, that's much but bigger. It's much bigger and it's dried out because yeah. it's been farmed. It's been like bred for size as we think about all like agricultural right. practices. Still very small, but Still much small. bigger than, than the one that you just pulled off the pad. Exactly. So here's a dry one. We'll set that aside. Um, and so once, so if we were going to make dye out of this, this dried one, we take the dried cochineal, put them in the mortar and pestle, grind them up, and you want to do that. But with this little wet guy, we can just look at sort of the way the color instantly leaves it. Oh, yeah. It's like a so maroonish it, color on your finger now. Exactly. So even though like this is a deeply inefficient practice and you would probably not be doing this is a way to like dial your clothes red by the cacti in your yard. It gives you a different appreciation for the things that like make up your world. All right, Erica, thanks so much for coming in. I appreciate it. Yeah, happy to. That'll do it for this Monday edition of the show. Happy President's Day to everyone. And be sure to join us tomorrow. We will be back with much more. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram as well. We are at KJZZ, the show. For Mark Brody, I'm Lauren Gilger. Thanks for joining us. 